We're here today to speak with one of the contributors to our new book, How to Heal Our Divides. Rich Taffel is focused on the next generation of business, church, and politics. He serves as a pastor, social venture strategist, and facilitator of political dialogue. He provides leadership coaching and organizational strategy to social ventures, spiritual entrepreneurs, and political leaders seeking a more civil society. He works at Rafa Social Capital Advisors, Church of the Holy City, and at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, where he is co-founder of the American Project, which imagines healthier American politics. He was a founder of the Workplace Wellness Council of Mexico, created Log Cabin Republicans, and authored Party Crasher, a gay Republican challenges politics as usual. He has directed adolescent health programs for the state of Massachusetts and has served as assistant to the minister at Harvard University's chapel. So, Rich, uh, what an amazing, eclectic uh, background that you have. <laughs> yeah, it, doesn't, it sounds pretty crazy, all these different areas in one person. Well, it's really impressive, I mean, uh, that you've done so much in so many different areas. But uh, I, I really appreciate you being involved in this project. Um, you know, thanks so much for, for doing that. Um, maybe are there different elements of, of your background before we get into the the, uh, the new stuff? Is there any elements of your background that you'd like to share more about? Um, I think it'll come out in the interview. Um, I think fundamentally I'm guided by my spiritual principles, my Christian background. So everything else that I've done, that's been the North Star. A lot of people don't understand that. So people who know me in the business world. Uh, find it very odd that I'm a minister and often don't believe it. Um, <laughs> political world, same thing, you know, that. And then in the churchy world, the, the whole idea of being having being involved with business deals um, sounds, you know, tarnished and dirty to them. And they, they really can't understand why I would be either in, in the business world or in po politics, which they also look down upon. So each of the areas have a hard time understanding why I'm in the other ones. But for me, the North Star is uh, my faith and my belief that we're here to do as much good as we can uh, in the world. Um, that's, that's how the faith plays out. Loving God is loving your neighbor and that's justice. And so that's gonna mean you're gonna have to move some levers probably in the business world and in the political world and in the church world, which is actually a little uh, stymied right now and stuck. Well, it's really unique, you know, for you to be able to be playing in those three different areas, you know, faith, politics, and entrepreneurship, right? I mean, uh, I don't know anyone else, quite frankly, you know, that really is as active in each of those three spaces as what you are and have been. Um, so I, I think that's not only unique, but incredibly valuable. As, as you said, most people in one space don't really understand the others. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the industrial age kind of taught us all that we were specialists and that you're going to go into this thing and, and you should just be an expertise in that one area and that you could farm out all the other knowledge you'd need from the other sectors. So just just know your space. And uh, I think we're coming into an age where what I'm doing will be more normal, where we'll be integrating both within ourselves and the outside, but also between sectors, because the challenges that we face in the world right now are pretty dramatic, and we're going to need people who can navigate those sectors. Uh, that, that's been my experience. I wandered into these areas, frankly, accidentally, but that's a spiritual journey of a life. If you're open to following God, you'll go in places you never expect. Isn't that the truth? I can attest to that as well. 
<laughs> well, um, the essay in the book that you wrote is focused on your work at Church of the Holy City, which is really a heavy overlap between um, faith and entrepreneurship. So can you tell us a little bit about how that work got started? Yeah, well, it's a little bit of my life. I started off as a, a assistant minister at the chapel at Harvard um, University, where I graduated from divinity school under the mentorship of Peter Gomes, who uh, became uh, a dear friend and, and uh, but definitely a mentor. And so that's where I did my seminarian work and my assistant minister work. And so that was the kind of path I thought I would be on altogether. And then um, I came out of the closet and everybody to a person pretty much said, this is the 80s, uh, you're done with church. There is no path forward for you. There's no career here. You better go find something else. Uh, I remember I took the uh, LSATs, did terrible, thank God. I uh, didn't go <laughs> And then um, a friend of mine said, hey, you're very strategic politically. Would you manage a campaign for me? And I was offended because I really did view politics as sort of a, a you know, dirty game and not something for a, a pastor to be involved with. So I, um, but I managed the campaign and long story short, ended up supporting a candidate to be governor of Massachusetts, Bill Well, back in uh, 1990. Um, and um, advised him on gay issues and AIDS issues with other other folks. And so, lo and behold, at 28, I get appointed adolescent health director for the state of Massachusetts in the Bill Weld administration because there was no Republicans in Massachusetts to appoint, so they were desperate. And that's really how I got the job, totally unqualified, no public health background. And I got to open up the school-based health centers in the state and the community-based health centers and he was very, very cutting edge on gay and lesbian issues. So we created the first gay youth commission in the state. I did the first uh, adolescent HIV AIDS campaign uh, in the in the country at the time. So he was very entrepreneurial. And so that um, opened me to the world of politics. And I saw how, wow, with just one you know, decision maker, I could change AIDS policy in a whole state. And as someone who had been a buddy uh, to people living with AIDS back in the early 80s and watched them die and die and die, I, I said, this is not really a, um, this is not a good model. It is not enough to minister to people who are dying. You've got to figure out what are the systems here that either are going to get a cure or a medication or at least stop the discrimination so they don't get kicked out of restaurants, their apartments and, and hospitals. So I was very amazed the power of the political and the policy world and that uh, I had learned nothing of this in theological school. We talked about it intellectually. We talked about liberation theology. It was very popular at the time, but we never talked about how you move policy or, or change a, a politician's mind on something. And um, Governor Weld, at the time a Republican, went on to become the most gay supportive political leader in the United States, even surpassing Democrats. And to me, this was a real eye-opening thing. Wow, no one uh, had talked to him uh, from, the, from the gay community. And uh, here we did, and, and here he was. Um, so that led me into the political world. That also led uh, for politicians around the country, moderate Republicans, saying the AIDS slash gay community will not speak to me. But we have to vote on these bills every year. Can you come out and meet with me and explain to me what is HIV? What is AIDS? How is it contracted? Um, and what should what would a compassionate person do? Because my inclination is that 
these people sort of deserved it. That's where I'm starting here. So maybe it's God's punishment. And can you come and talk to me about it? So I would meet with a wow. country and meet with political leaders, um, some of them now famous, but more in the moderate wing, and then just explain 101. This is how it works. This is, And there's a piece of legislation called the Ryan White Care Act that had to be funded every year. And I would have to explain to them what it was, who he was, a young uh, hemophiliac boy who got AIDS and, and eventually died. So it was a just a big education. The At that same time, the gay and lesbian issue in the culture, now I'm coming into the 90s, became first and foremost. And the Republican Party, of which I had sort of grown up as a moderate Republican, suburban Philadelphia, pro-choice family, fiscally conservative, socially don't talk about it, uh, we were witnessing the rise of the religious right in the United States, and they were taking over the Republican Party. So uh, I found myself in my first TV appearance on uh, Nightline and then Larry King Live, and I was debating Jerry Falwell from the Bible. And in a way, wow, that had been an amazing experience. <laughs> It was a wild experience, and he had clearly never debated a gay person who knew scripture and knew the history. Of <laughs> and he argued, you know, you don't take the Bible literally, Richard, and I just made the point, should slaves obey their masters? Because you use that text to oppress black people, and you're using text out of context to oppress people, and that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that debate, uh, this is all pre-social media, but that debate really launched um, donors who came out of the woodwork and said, you need to go to Washington and you need to do this full time. And so that's when I moved to DC and then started the Log Cabin Republicans. And that was just purely debating the Christian right. And it was also uh, lobbying. And shortly after I arrived, the Republicans took control of all branches of government. So it was actually divine providence in a way. And I was the only person from either the gay or AIDS community in 19... 95 to testify uh, on behalf of AIDS funding, which we got completely funded. Actually, our funding was the Republicans funded it higher than President Clinton. So that was a real education for me. How do you get laws passed? Uh, I did a series of debates on gay marriage with the Christian Action Network on college campuses. And it was just a really uh, brutal and interesting um, and a world of fighting within the conservative party of a country um, as a Christian. Uh, on behalf of the LGBT community. And so that's what I did for, that was my like immersion baptism by far. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it was the right thing to do at that moment. And it was important for me as a Christian to also represent a different Christianity. Um, so that was my policy education. After that, I started a strategy company and consulting company, um, mainly coaching. And that turned into a business, uh, the, the rise of social business. It was just coming into being. And I ended up becoming uh, very interested in that because I believed in capitalism, but I saw its shortcomings. And I also wanted uh, to alleviate poverty primarily. And so how could capitalism be used to alleviate poverty in this new field of social enterprise was coming into being. And I became a, sort of a pioneer in that space and worked on um, combining business strategy and uh, policy strategy, doing uh, delivering AIDS drugs to Africa was the first project. So uh, after politics, I wanted to, and, you know, starting with a spiritual goal of how do you do good in the world and knowing that politics was a big lever and not, not really, and also experiencing the power that business could have, which I had no experience in, frankly, 
uh, I was approached to address a, a, a really major issue in the world, which was the AIDS crisis in Africa by a friend who had a nonprofit called the AIDS Responsibility Project. And uh, he wanted to raise awareness, particularly among conservatives, that this is something the country should do. And so that was a hard sell, selling the idea that sending AIDS funds to, for AIDS drugs in Africa to Republicans who controlled everything was a good idea. And uh, we ended up taking um, and educating uh, Republican leaders by taking them to Africa to experience it. And it was uh, a good example where the spiritual crisscrosses with the policy because they started quite cynically with me, like, you know, is there going to be safaris and, you know, is there cheap stuff you can buy in these towns and this is cool and this is a trip and it's all paid for. And and I was good with that. Yep, you will and we will do a safari and everything else. And uh, but um, and they were doubtful that this was a good idea. And when they uh, I told them, I said, you know, come with us. Um, it's the only thing you're going to remember from this year because, you know, you didn't come here from Iowa to attack Democrats. I mean, you came to do good and you're stuck. This is a chance to really do good. Come with me. You'll, I, I promise you'll, you'll remember it. So that was powerful because those folks became the champions for the bill. And they would say to me years later, that wasn't the most important thing I did that year. It's the most important thing I've done in my life. Wow. So they had a spirit, wow. I would say a spiritual experience. When you have kids and you see kids uh, who will die if there is not uh, an approach um, so it was really quite an example where the spiritual and the political intercede because I didn't have a good political argument. I wasn't going to get more money in their pack. I didn't promise their boss they would get reelected, but I did appeal to their moral uh, mission. And people will not believe this, but it's true. Particularly the young people who come to Washington, they come with a moral mission and they want to do good. And they get caught up in a terrible system that we've now created that almost pollutes everybody who gets into it, but that's not where they start. So that group working with the Congressional Black Caucus provided a, an unbeatable coalition, evangelicals and on the Republican side and um, the Congressional Black Caucus, and it became the largest spending program for the United States since the Marshall Plan, and millions of lives were saved. So in that role, I saw the power of businesses. Businesses played a huge role, including pharmaceuticals. They're not popular, but they played a very positive role. Car companies and businesses because, quite frankly, if this disease continued, they'd have no workers, to be blunt. Again, you start with where people are, and that's where I started. And so uh, that moved me into the business sector and um, worked in, as, as you had mentioned in the introduction, uh, with businesses in Mexico, addressing first AIDS and then healthcare, and created a council of businesses seeking to do good, uh, which we co-founded. And um, back in the United States, I was doing the social enterprise uh, work, and eventually the, city, the state of Michigan um, through another group I was working with, had me do the strategy, help, help provide a strategy to do the first social entrepreneur competition in the United States in Michigan with a focus on uh, Detroit. And that was incredibly eye-opening because I volunteered to coach anybody who entered the competition. We expected 20 and we had 60. And it <laughs> gave me a, a crash course on how entrepreneurs think and how to translate what they wanted to do to investors. And so I've been in that sector. Um, so that's kind of the, the, that's the background for the areas. What I find missing in the culture is um, 
integration and translation. I feel like I'm translating all the time. This is how a business person could hear it. Here's how a conservative would hear it. Here's how a political leader needs to hear it. Here's how a church person can hear it. And if you can translate into the language of the person you're speaking to, you find out that we all kind of want the same thing, generally. People want, you know, to be loved. They want to take care of their family. They want good health. They want enough money to live a decent life. Um, you know, they want to have hobbies. So it's, we're all saying the same thing, but we're caught between um, not being able to translate. Um, so that brought me full circle to coming back to church again. And that's where I came to church, the Holy City, and said, when I came in as pastor, uh, I had been coaching spiritual entrepreneurs for a decade. Uh, was, uh, and it was, since 2011, I had publicly been doing spiritual entrepreneurs. That's people who are motivated by their spiritual life to transform their business or to transform politics. And it's again, integration. So in the beginning, I got a lot of ministers who said, you know, I went to divinity school, I went to theological school. They didn't even teach me how to manage my board. They didn't teach me how to run a meeting. They didn't teach me how to do fundraising. They didn't teach me how to deal with pl plumbers and builders. <laughs> and these are all the things I'm doing. And they taught me about the synoptic gospels and not one person has asked me about the synoptic gospels. <laughs> <laughs> It was, it was, um, so it was a lot of ministers saying, I want to have an impact in life. I can't even run my own business called my church, let alone engage business. I can't, you know, be a prophet from the pulpit and talk about changing politics, but have no clue how you really do it other than sort of virtue signaling that we're doing the right thing, put a sign outside and we're, we're good. No, I really want to know how to change it. So that was a really interesting group, uh, originally of ministers. Eventually I started getting clients who were very successful in the business and political sectors, but had lost complete track of their soul and uh, had achieved the highest recognition in the culture and had achieved the money. And then they came to me and said, I don't even know what I love. Like, I don't even know what I care about most deeply other than my family. Like, I, I couldn't, I, if I, you can't, I couldn't even tell you what I'm passionate about. And so that became a, those two, I realized this integration runs both ways. It's both for nonprofit or spiritual people who want to have an impact and learn that skill set. But I could also translate the other way because they respect me from business and they respect me from politics. Um, they would say, you know, you're not wavy gravy. You're not, you know, woohoo. Okay. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I tell them my tradition, Swedenborgianism, it's Christian mysticism. It doesn't get much weirder than that. We're really into angels and spiritual energy. And um, it's, it is kind of, um, out there, but they were like, no, you're a business guy. I can, I can hear what you have to say. How do I get to be more spiritual? And so that's kind of where I've been doing the coaching of integrating those two sides. Very fascinating. And then when a church uh, in my denomination essentially was going to be closed, um, right on 16th Street, up, up the street from the White House, seats 300, it was down to essentially five people. And their average age was around 70 and the denomination wanted to sell it they didn't they thought there was a hope for it to you know come back to life and uh, they were both talking to their lawyers essentially and they said if you can get a minister in our denomination who's willing to take it on um, they didn't have a full-time salary either god bless we'll give you a chance and that's how i came in saying i'd love to see if i could take this on as a incubator for spiritual entrepreneurism where we really you know we're on 16th street we can speak politics we could speak to young people who are dying to create businesses, 
But what they're missing in the social enterprise sector that I discovered was no one was talking to them about their soul or their purpose or their meaning or, or the power of God or the power of forgiveness or the power of love. These things are absent right now in the culture. In the general culture, you won't get that at Harvard Business School or Harvard's Kennedy School. Um, and unfortunately, the divinity school, is, it's quite intellectual. And so people are looking for these practical skills. How do I do it? Like, step by step, what do I do? And that, that's kind of what we've been using the church as. Meaning that we've kept a traditional service on Sunday, uh, somewhat traditional, it's not all traditional, but we've kept a service on Sunday. And um, looked at the building and said, how can we turn this, which was a liability, $2 million in uncapitalized maintenance, how can we turn that into an asset? And how do you do that? How do you turn this space into an asset? Um, and it's not going to be in an old church model, which is what churches are still trying to do. And that's how I got to Church of the Holy City. Man, <laughs> that's just an amazing saga, Rich. Uh, and, and I just think it's so outstanding. Um, but, but tell us where, where things stand now. I mean, um, when did you actually come on board there? And what you know, have you established since then? Yeah, it's a great question. So I came in about to 2016 and uh, actually Advent of 2015, the last weeks of the year. And, um, and so this is my fifth year. Um, it's a really interesting experience. Um, for one thing, um, I've learned a lot of lessons if, if I were, that I um, did not apply you know, myself that I would do in the startup world that I should have applied. Um, one of the great paradoxes is when you're doing a startup, the first question I ask you, are you going to be full-time on this? And you have to say yes. And then who's your team? And you have to point out who your team is, and that's how you get investment capital. In the church, they say, we can't pay you a full salary, and uh, there is no startup capital, so to speak, and kind of hopefully you can limp this thing into life again. And that's really uh, a fool's errand, uh, which I've spent some time on because the church just simply said, we don't have any money to pay you a full salary. So I still do my impact investing work. I still do other consulting outside of the church, uh, which is too bad. I, if I could be full time, things would move faster. But that was my first lesson was how different the church work was versus how different the social sector was. Um, what we've been doing there since then was, uh, I would say the you know, my joke is that when I came in, people said, you know, the group that was there who were very kind souls and open to what I was doing, but they said, you know, do whatever you have to do to grow this, you know, save us, save the building, save the community, but don't change anything. Like, <laughs> You know, uh, we had a King James, uh, if you're a church person, you know what I mean, but a King James style of English red liturgy, um, and which was quite beautiful, completely irrelevant to the young people walking past the building who had never entered uh, and never would. And so the question was, how do you take worship on that inner life part? How do you take that and make it relevant? And then um, the outer life, how do you offer courses or training in business? And uh, that was a fascinating experience where I would talk to young people and say, you know, if you come to church, you can kind of get this consulting for free. And they would say, I still won't come. I don't have any trust in church. Church is the place that discriminates. Church is the place that excluded me. Church is the place that is anti-gay. Church is the place that's anti-women. 
Um, ch church has a racist history. So the biggest barrier to me at the church was the word church and the bu building itself. And, you know, you have to do events outside of church to get young entrepreneurs in. So we started doing dinners and they would say, just coming in here has been healing for me because I never thought I'd walk into a church again. And they would tell a story of some horrible thing that happened in their life. But so that's the way we've reached out to the younger entrepreneur group. And, um, and then I was faced with the reality that my first entrepreneurial effort had to be the building itself. Um, it was an undercapitalized albatross. Yet, if it could be flipped into an asset, it could be quite profitable, to use an unpopular word, for it could, you could have uh, rentals. And so we began a process of turning it into um, essentially uh, a model almost like of a WeWork where, uh, or an Airbnb where groups could rent space that were aligned to our mission. And then um, in some cases we'd offer coaching or strategy as needed. And then church is an afterthought. I would always say, you're, you're welcome to come to church. And they'd just be, no, that, that, that would be a bridge too far. It's, it's bad enough that I'm housed in a church. Um, and I still can't believe you're a minister, uh, <laughs> anything I know about a minister, but, uh, eventually we're seeing now the crisscrossing of people coming and doing events at the church, then showing up for church, church people curious about the entrepreneurial sector and, um, integrating that. And now we're doing cohorts where people will develop both their inner life, which would be a spiritual path, but we'll also be developing their businesses. And, uh, it's. It's generally skews a little bit younger um, in interest, and it skews more female than male, interestingly enough, uh, which I didn't know. And um, we've also been trying, we've, I've been deliberate about the, the gap in America around race, and particularly traditionally white churches, which we are. And I've been aggressive about making it a friendly space for the black community, including this the person who now runs the rental business for us, um, who's an African-American woman. And um, she's really the success story more than I am now as a event planner. She's brilliant. She's creative. But now people trust her and they come in. And we have hip hop recordings now being done in the church. And we have um, all kinds of other things that groups that would have not been felt welcome. So fundamentally, um, I asked a group the other night, what do you think our number one messages here, you know, as church, and they said inclusion. Oh. And with my Republican background, which is really a heresy in Washington, um, I, I will facilitate political discussions in church as well. And obviously my attendees are going to skew left, if not far left. We're in a city that, you know, generally votes 96% presidentially for Democratic candidates. Um, but we've done dialogue in church about left-right issues. Um, and my message is, it's not about agreeing with each other. Um, it's about having the sanctuary, a church, a space that's safe and that we're still all God's children. We have to love each other. So how do you love each other through that? Things have gotten more difficult, frankly, uh, here in Washington because of the insurrection on January 6th. And it's made some of my folks absolutely not interested in any dialogue now. Uh, because they feel like, you know, anybody, you, you kind of feel like you're, you, you know, are, are you uh, holding a dialogue with the alt-right, you know, is how they would see it. So it's, it's more needed than ever. 
Um, so we created actually a podcast uh, two years ago with my vice president, who is a progressive leader, created the coffee party against the tea party. And she and I just purposely take difficult topics and show that we're, that we don't agree, but we love each other. And that's kind of what we're trying to do in the church. So we're trying to integrate people internally in their spiritual life and externally in their business life. And we're trying to integrate them to do good in the world. And we're trying to play a role in the polarization issue that's plaguing our country and could rip everything down. Well, I think you're just such an amazing role model, quite frankly, for churches to look at. Um, you know, the old definition of what a church has been just isn't serving us. And um, there's such a need, right, as you've identified, um, to do things differently and do things in a way that speak to the practicalities, I think is where you describe as where people are at, Yeah. right? You know, whether that's economically, whether that's faith-wise, whether that's politically, and, um, and you know, and then integrating them as is at least feasible, right? And if it's not, it's not. But I mean, um, how can people learn about and emulate what you've done? Well, that's a good question. Probably they should read the book that you're producing with you <laughs> as a case study. Seriously, that's really a good place. Um, I'm happy to talk to anybody who's interested in it. I do consulting around this. And I'll say that um, the key as I'm sure you've discovered in your life, is building trust with people and just honoring that desperately. And what I do is, um, if I'm, I'm consulting with the church now, that um, this model that I'm I've just described, it's too late, frankly. If I met with them 10 years ago, maybe, but um, for a variety of reasons. So we, I am walking them through the process of selling the building and turning their board into a trusteeship that'll be incredibly useful for God, much more useful than the building is right now. And they flip from, we're never giving up our building to, oh my gosh, this is a new opportunity that we could be benefactors to young entrepreneurs who are doing great things in the world. And uh, so it's shifted and that's a good example. It's different in every case. But in that same case, there was a lot of distrust within that group about outsiders. And so I've I, I'm not an expert in many areas, so I do have a lawyer involved. I do have a real estate agent involved. Churches that cut corners on that expertise always suffer, in my experience. So that's kind of, um, you know, I, I, every church is different, so you have to respond where they are. But I do know the model of the idea of a passive white man on a Sunday telling people what to believe at 11 o'clock and then kind of ministering them to the, during the week, but the church not all being all that used is uh, a dead dis a dead business model as far as i'm concerned uh, it, it will last for some time at, just out of tradition but it's not relevant when i create the cohorts for spiritual entrepreneurship i'm flooded with requests that's so that energy is where people are that's what they want to do they want to create um, that's a very spiritual energy co-creation with god that's where they are we should be meeting that need and not sending them to the business school, not sending them to where they're not going to get an ounce of uh, support on their spiritual life. And we should be that space. So it, it does really transform how church could do it. And that's, uh, I'm open to talking to people. And the secret is, you know, very few people are trained in this. So get a team of other people around you that could do it. 
bring a business leader in, bring a, a lobbyist if you need, if you're doing policy issues, bring a facilitator. That's the other huge skill set. Last year, uh, right before the pandemic hit, I spoke to Yale Divinity School students on this topic, and we did hot seats where they would meet with me for uh, 20 minutes and pitch their entrepreneurial idea. Shark Tank. It was Shark Tank. That's what we called it in Michigan, Shark Tank for good. And so I did Shark Tank and I, they would pitch it and I would tell them do this, that, the other, here's the entity you need to create and so forth. But what was interesting was they all had the ideas. They were all thinking of these things anyway. And they all knew they didn't have a future in the parish, a traditional parish. So many are not even going to school. Why go into school, go into debt to be told that you can't, there's, there's no churches. So they had brilliant ideas. And I, so I think that the theological schools should start teaching this as well and be incredibly practical for their graduates so they can, if they can't land a job at an established space, they can create their own. Well, that was just the question I was going to ask you next, Rich, is that that's the obvious conclusion of all of this, right? Is that, you know, seminaries that are so struggling themselves, the model that they've supported is so struggling. So they don't, as you said, have pulpits to fill. So what do all the, how can they equip all these people that are interested in a, you know, at least partially theological education, you know, find something where they thrive. And I think you've hit on the model. I, I like to think so. And, I, and I, I, what I would say is it doesn't, there's not going to be a lot of me's because it's a weird path, like that I went from church to politics, to business, to, to church. And that's just, that's a personality type. I'm extremely entrepreneurial. And that's but the skills are all teachable. The skills are teachable, I mean, but, uh, but some people are not entrepreneurial. I'll just say that it's just not, they, they really crave safety. If you really crave safety, and a lot of ministers do, because I ask ministers, please, would you do a dialogue on this topic? And they say, and get fired or piss off somebody or piss off my donors. So it's a bad model. The congregational model, frankly, is not a, it's not a prophetic model because people live in fear of their donors yeah. and they can't preach the gospel. But what you could do though, is be a great facilitator. I'll bring in you know, Brave Angels, a wonderful group that does left-right dialogue. I'll bring them in to do the dialogue. I'll bring in this expert on nonprofit law. I'll bring in this, you know, you, you can bring some, you, all you have to do is have an open mind, admit what you don't know, but know that the integration has to take place and then bring the right people in. So I, I think that's the way to do it. And eventually we'll have, a, the next generation will be more like me. They'll be integrated. They'll understand these different areas is, is my guess. Well, Rich, um, again, I really want to thank you for um, all that you've done. I want to thank you for being part of this project. I, I really do believe that, you know, you're a role model for what church needs to think about and become and, and seminaries as well. So thanks you so much for doing that and uh, for being part of our project. Well, thank you for including me. I appreciate it.